you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, if you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along, you can get the Bible that's in the pew or the chair in front of you. Actually, we'll begin reading with chapter 41, verse 21, on page 601 in that blue Bible. 601. One of the things we've been doing is looking into Isaiah, who's called uh, the, the gospel of the Old Testament. And Isaiah speaks much of the coming Messiah. So we're dealing with some of those passages that deal with the Messiah, but also trying to see their context. And again, we'll see this morning how the context, speaking about the servant, is idolatry. And so, again, we're going to look at that subject and something of how Christ comes to us as Savior from our idolatry. Also, next week, we'll deal with this same passage, but concentrate more in chapter 42. So, we'll be dealing with this overall passage for two weeks. Verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is a courtroom scene. It's a judgment scene, and actually he's calling in the false idols, and Israel is the audience, and he's wanting the false idols to give testimony. Where are your predictions, false idols? Tell us what is coming down the pike. Did you tell us that Cyrus was coming to judge Israel? No, you never mentioned a word about this. I was the one that said it. And he speaks of the... The fruitlessness, the absolute vanity of resting in these idols that are not God's because they can do nothing. They know nothing. They are nothing. And he ends that section with behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Then there's a second behold. And he does this back to back. 
For contrast, behold, look at these idols. Now, behold, look at my servant. Okay. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. There's some accomplishment. (laughs) Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you speaking to the servant. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation's. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them again, the final contrast of this creator who made all things, who brings them to conclusion, who knows where everything is going, as opposed to the vain and empty and helpless idols. Let us pray. Lord God, bless us that we may discover the ways in which we ourselves are perhaps serving idols as a way of life or what the remaining idols are in our lives, that we might more fully give our lives up to the blessed servant who brings us out of the dark dungeons of idolatry into the light of true worship of the true God, our gracious King, who has even given his own servant for our good and the good of the nations. Bless us, Lord, that you may be exalted. Amen. Let's first look at the treatment of idolatry. And I would like for you to look with me at verse 29 again. When it says their metal images are empty wind, it literally reads, and perhaps a better translation, NIV has, wind and confusion. Wind and, you might say, chaos. It's the same word used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was chaos. The earth was formless. The earth was confusion. And, of course, God acted to bring light into the darkness and to bring structure and meaning and form to what was utter chaos. He is the God who enters our lives And brings us out of chaos into the order of worship of God. And here, the life of worshiping idols is regarded as confusion and chaos, emptiness, vanity, 
and obvious destruction. Even the word is used earlier. Those who choose idols, verse 24, it's an abomination. It's an abomination because we are made to thrive and be nourished by God himself. And when we turn away from him and destroy ourselves upon idols, it's an abomination because we are made for God. An abomination. You know, you have that phrase, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. A human being is a terrible thing to waste. It's an abomination. That anyone made in the image of God and so the dignity and glory of knowing God would turn from God to serve idols. And yet all of us, all of us have done just that. So Isaiah is speaking here into paganism. The whole world was immersed in paganism. The whole world immersed in this worldview into which the Israelites, the Israelite prophets spoke a word about a God who transcended this world. One God who created the world and oversees the world, enters in, and, and deals with the world in an intimate way and knows what is happening in the world and what will happen and brings it finally to pass. Paganism is basically what we call monism. Monism meaning one. The belief that everything is basically one being with everything else. That is, people, the world, and gods are all part of one fabric, one thing, one system, you might say. And since it's all one system, this system is destined to repeat itself because it can't be anything else but what it is. So the idols could not look forward to anything new happening. You could only try to study what has happened up till now, what is happening in the past, and try to make some guess as to what would happen in the future because everything's going to be the same. There's not going to be anything new that can change anything, that can change this world, that can bring anything about. Matter and this whole system was regarded as basically eternal. One continuing cycle of the same thing. No way in, no way out. It is what it is, and it's always going to be that. The God's also are a part of the system. There's no way that they can tell us how the system began or how it will end. They're mired in the system. They're not above it or outside of it. They can't look at the whole and figure it out. They're stuck in it. They're controlled by it. They help form that system. And they can't tell us something that has never happened before. All they can tell us about the future is some repeat of something in the past. That's why Isaiah goes after them in this setting of judgment in verse 22. Let them bring them. Tell us what is to happen. Come on. Show that you're a God. Show that you're really a God and not just empty idols immersed in this world. 
Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them or that we may know their outcome or to to declare to us the things to come. Notice verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Prove that you're God's. Show us something. Let's see it. And he's attacking paganism with the God who does know what has never happened because he's going to bring it about. He knows what certainly is going to take place. That's why in 42.9, he ends this section by saying the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. That is why I am God and they are not. As John Oswald says, he is one who is other than the system, one who has made the system according to certain specifications, one who makes the system operate according to his sovereign will. And anything worthy of the term God must be more than the system itself. That fundamental truth that there is a God outside who rules, who created who can explain the beginning of existence and the meaning of existence and where this world is going, that changed the Western world. That invasion of a philosophical religious idea, that is, we believe the truth, changed the history of the world as it spoke into paganism and its closed monism of one system bound to the chains of its cycle over and over and over again. But Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that though the creation itself proclaims to us the existence of God, it proclaims His divine nature. Instead of honoring Him and thanking Him and worshiping Him as God, Paul says, mankind turned from God and bowed down to the creation instead of the Creator. So, we refused to worship this God and and delight in Him. We turned to idols for satisfaction and fulfillment and power and meaning. We basically turn away from God, seeking life in this world apart from God. That's our sin nature. We seek for life. We seek for pizzazz apart from God. Because we don't think we'll find it in that God. We want awe and wonder and thrills or we want comfort and safety and order and security or we want pleasure. We want control. We want enrichment. We want life to count. We want life to mean something. And we don't think God will bring it to us. And Paul says we turn away from God to seek it. We decide with Eve to strike out on our own. We're going to push God to the periphery of our lives and we'll focus on what he has made. And that becomes our God, our source of life, the center of our lives. We dig a well and we plunge our bucket in to try to get satisfaction. That's the nature of idolatry. That we are not finding our chief delight in God himself. 
because we don't think that's where we're going to find it. I think a great analogy for uh, idolatry, and of course, we're thinking of idolatry very differently perhaps than they knew it in terms of actual idols of metal or wood. Ours, as you know, are quite varied. The kind of stuff we get to have, uh, it can be uh, various forms of entertainment. It can be our jobs. It can even be your family. You can even make an idol out of your own marriage. Whatever you might focus on to push God aside and make it the whole basic reason you're living. But here Isaiah is basically saying the world of idolatry is a death trap because we were made for God and we must have him or we die. It is an abomination. It is a delusion. It's nothing. It's tohu, empty. It's confusion and chaos. He uses that word to say that to oppose God who brings order, idolatry brings chaos and it it brings devolution, destruction of our lives and destruction of all things. He speaks in cataclysmic terms here. You line up all the idols mankind has ever devised. None of them can bring the goods You know why? There are no substitutes for God. There are a lot of offered substitutes for God. It's like mother's milk. Can you imagine a mother saying, you know, I'm not going to feed my newborn baby my milk. I decided lemon juice and water. There's some vitamin C. I understand it's in the lemon juice. It gets the water. What's going to happen to that baby? Or Coke, root beer, apple juice. Apple juice is good. What would it do to a child? There are no substitutes for the rich combination of nutrients and and carbohydrates and fats and proteins. This luscious, wonderful milkshake, you know, that God has made for these children to be nourished on and to thrive on. What a glorious creation of God. There's nothing that you can substitute. Or if you try to bring a substitute, and sometimes this is necessary, and here the illustration breaks down, you try to get it just like that, don't you? Imitate it exactly. There are no substitutes for God. And we need him just as desperately, just as exactly as a baby needs its mother's milk. You try to bring something else in, it won't do. That's not what we're made for. It cannot satisfy in two ways. It can't satisfy our real tastes as human beings. What really will delight our souls. And it cannot satisfy us as to make us healthful and fruitful. To set us free from sin. Because that's our real disease. That's our real problem. Is our, our idolatry is a function of our worship of self. And wanting to hold on to our lives and not give our lives up to this God. Because if we make up our own idols, then it's our control. It's our world. It's our religion. It's my life. And I'm taking in the things that I've made up. Instead of giving my mind and my life and all that I am over to this God and trusting everything to Him. So there are no substitutes. 
And all the disruptions and agonies of mankind are the symptoms of our deprivation, the symptoms of our being without God. Minus God, look what we do to each other. Minus God, look how we hate and hurt and ignore one another. And so in this Christmas season, I believe Isaiah would challenge us to ask this question. What are your idols? What combination of things make up what really turns you on at besides God, instead of God, apart from God? What makes you tick? What gets your juices flowing? Now, don't get me wrong. We are also made to love his creation, including what we would call legitimate culture. We're made to enjoy music and art and literature and skiing and hiking and cars and computers and movies and couches and gardens and pets. Okay, those are not wrong in themselves. They're not evil things. They're part of God's creation. Having relationship with God doesn't mean you love life less. It means you love it more. But especially it means that you love it in the right way. You love it for his sake. You enjoy him in it. You seek him in it. He's the center of it all. So while you may read excellent books, you especially prize reading his word. It just marks your life. And you like books for how it brings you into some kind of understanding of this world for God's sake. When you're on a hike, you can't help but praise him over and over, at least in your heart, as you recognize his hand all around you and you give him thanks. And you sometimes just stop in awe of this God. You, you can't hike without it. You, know? you can't hike without it becoming basically a worship service. You love good comedy, but you especially love the people of God, working with them and for them and serving them and praying for them and worshiping with them and ministering with them. See, your life is marked by your loves for God and his people. Let me just throw out an example. If if you're weak, I think we've mentioned something like this before, but if your week is, say, full of 15 to 20 hours of TV and hardly a few minutes of the word in prayer, it's difficult to believe that you're enjoying God's gift of, I hope, good entertainment, okay? We assume it's the best of TV. Uh, But it's hard to imagine that you're enjoying God's gift of this and Him in it if you really don't care to focus any full attention on Him in the week. You see, it's kind of hard to believe that this is a function of your love and worship of God when you don't want to mainline him in the word in any way during the week. It's just not a part of your life. But TV is. See, that's one of those indicators that, you know, I may be trying to use this as a vital fulfillment of my life as something that gives me life while I completely turn away. From the very word of God itself. You see, it really amounts to having a taste for God himself. You like to contemplate him. You like to read about his ways, about his being, about his work, about his salvation, especially as he's revealed in Christ. And though it's not even, it's not perfect, but there's a response of joy and tears and conviction and awe and amazement 
trembling, repentance, faith, hope, peace, comfort. You have real dealings with the real God. And it just forms the hub of your life. And everything else fits in with it, is related to it. It defines you. It's who you are. And therefore, if something compromises your relationship with God, you turn away from it. Because you don't need it ultimately. Because all you need ultimately is Him. And if you lose everything, you don't really ultimately care because He is what you're living for. You're willing to lose everything except Him. You can withstand the loss of anything as long as you have Him. You put your life in His hands to do His will, to trust Him with the outcome. Trusting Him with your happiness and your satisfaction. That's what's so hard. Trusting Him with your happiness and your satisfaction. That's where our idolatries eat in and control us. You know, it's really sad, and this is hugely convicting to me. But when you think about what God, who He is, the God of love, and how He's revealed Himself in Christ in by revealing the death of Christ and His sacrifice for us, as John and others say, He's revealed the love of God to us. And then the call of God is to receive that love, be forgiven and upheld and sustained and nourished and changed by that love, and then to live out that love. That's the gospel. That's the offer. To be loved by Him in Christ and to give yourself away in love. We see in idolatry, you turn away from love. That's the heart of idolatry. We say no to love. We say no to God's love. We won't trust it. We won't entrust our lives to it. And we won't entrust our lives to live it out. I think of idolatry kind of like that submarine that we're fairly familiar with, the K-141 Kursk. Remember in the year 2000, August 12th, the Kursk, which was the largest submarine ever built, close to the length of a football field, four stories high. Described as unsinkable, its chrome and nickel and steel outward hull. Uh, and then it had another hull, a steel hull, two meters in, just thought to be unsinkable. Hardly to be detected by mad systems. And it was a, there was a testing here. There's, there was a kind of revival in the late 90s, early uh, 2000 of the Russian fleet that had suffered in the 10 years since communism. And there was now an upswing of the Navy. And this submarine was part of it. <clears throat> and they were doing exercises. And it was supposed to release a torpedo, <clears throat> fire a torpedo as part of the exercises. <clears throat> So right before noon on August 12th, the missile or not a torpedo, a a missile was fired, but an explosion occurred right after that. And the Kursk sunk straight to the bottom. And then another explosion, a little over two minutes after the first explosion, this one measured between 3.5 and 4.4 on the Richter scale, that explosion. And they found shards of metal blown 
most of the way or halfway through that, that submarine from that explosion. Some of the men weren't killed by that explosion. They were in the other end and they were alive for a few hours in a compartment. But they believe, of course, that this torpedo blew it up and destroyed and all men were killed. And I think so much of idolatry is being a death trap like that. You commit yourself to a life apart from God. And your life is headed for the bottom, I assure you. You won't be the human being God made you to be. You won't be the husband or the wife or the parent God made you to be. You won't be the citizen. And then there's judgment. There's facing this God in that last day. And there is a judgment. One of the most basic messages, constant messages by Jesus and by his apostles sent by Jesus was the coming judgment of God. John the Baptist speaks as the forerunner of Christ. He speaks of the coming harvest, the coming fire and judgment that Messiah is bringing. It's one of the major declarations. This is part of the good news. It is a wonderful thing to be warned. The bridge is out. It's a wonderful thing to get that warning. In a sense, it's good news. It's bad news, of course. The bridge is out. But it's good news to hear the bridge is out. So it was a vital, wonderful part of the good news. There is a Savior from the judgment that is coming upon the world. And that's why John Bunyan pictured the city where Pilgrim left the city as the city of destruction. The city that is destined for destruction. This world destined for destruction. Why the analogy of Noah is made in the New Testament. That the world was destined for destruction. And Peter says, now it's not going to be by water. It's going to be by flame. It's going to be a flaming judgment that's coming from God. It is coming. It is coming. And to commit ourselves to anything but the God who made us. The God who is God, who's worthy of the name God. A God you can truly depend on. A God who truly has your interest at heart. A God that has an unlimited love for you. And an unlimited capacity to do you good. And to work every single thing in your life such that you will be constantly developing into a more Christ-like person. His name is, should be called Jesus. His very name means salvation. He shall save his people from their sins. And so you see... That's why the contrast here, behold, they're all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant. Behold, my servant. He is the answer, you see, to idolatry. He is the answer that Yahweh comes to us in this servant. We have already seen a couple of weeks ago that this servant ends up laying his life down for the people. Suffering their punishment, bearing their sins 
and transgressions upon him. But I want to focus just on one aspect here, and that is his tenderness toward us in our brokenness and our idolatry, our chaos. In verse 2, he says, or verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You get the idea, right? Here's a reed that is bent over. It's not completely broken off, but it's, it's, it's cracked and it's bent over. And it's a picture of us in our absolute weakness, our, our idolatry, our sinfulness, our capacity, our, our limping way that we live life. Or this wick that is almost about to be snuffed out. But instead of disdaining us in our utter sinfulness and weakness, our, our abomination. Because he finds us in our abomination. But instead of just casting us off and say, oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I had a limit to where I would go. I had a limit to the kind of sin I wanted to deal with. The kind of heart that I was going to try to make pliable. Not yours. You see, that would be a casting off of the broken, the bruised reed. This thing's just too far gone. It's like some of those pieces of china that you've broken, you know, and maybe if some piece breaks into two, but 932 pieces, that one's gone. You know, that's how he finds us. 932 pieces. And he doesn't just sweep it out the door and say, whoever heard. He binds it up. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not see this little smoldering uh, excuse of a life and say, let's just get rid of that while we can. But he trims it and he plunges it more deeply into the oil and he brings it so that it's burning brightly. And he braces the reed and he strengthens it and he bandages it and he heals it. And it grows and produces fruit, actually. (laughs) That's the amazing thing. This thing that was smoldering and filling the place with ugly stench becomes light that gives light to the world. This broken reed that is dead and dying becomes an oak that's producing fruit. And so in his power, as the Lord says, you will open the eyes that are blind. You'll bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That is what the Lord Jesus, that is what the servant does in the face of our idolatry. You would think that he would look at our idolatry, our hatred of him as our husband and have nothing to do with us. Calvin says this, What intercourse can we have with God unless the mediator come between us? We undoubtedly are too far alienated from his majesty, and therefore we could not be partakers of salvation or of any other blessing, but through the kindness of Christ. There's no way for us 
but through the kindness of Christ. And I love this statement here as he speaks of the servant, in whom my soul delights, 42.1. Again, let me quote Calvin. Christ is not only beloved by the Father, but is alone beloved and accepted by Him. So there's no way of obtaining favor from God, but through the intercession of Christ. And then in Him, though, as Paul then describes, that we are in the Beloved, we become the Beloved. He loves us in Christ with one love. One love. And embraces us as He embraces His Son. There's no way otherwise. There's no way. But in Christ, in Christ, a bruised reed will not be broken and a smoldering wit will not be snuffed out. And one last thing, believers. We will not be completely free of sin until another life. We know that. And that means really that we will not be completely free of our idolatry in this life. Because in one sense, every sin of ours is involved in idolatry. We run the pattern of Romans 1 in every sin, not honoring him and thanking him but depending on something else for life and turning away from Him in our hearts or in our words or in our actions. Here's the amazing thing. God takes us as His bride, even though He knows we will look over our shoulder at our other lovers. He knows it from the start. Can you imagine... Can you imagine a guy waiting down here and the wife-to-be kind of pauses on her way down, (laughs) saying hi to her boyfriends on the way, and she's standing up there and she's all the time giving it. You just think, he's just got to leave her right now. Just leave her right there and walk out. The Lord takes us and we're still imperfect. We still are. It's mercy. You see, mercy. We don't earn the right to be there. We don't come this perfect bride that has no other love but God. It's sincere. Okay. It's real. But the idols are not completely dead in our heart. And he's still still accepts us in the Beloved. I don't know how. doesn't mean that we can therefore be careless. It just means there's mercy and forgiveness and acceptance in the midst of our struggle to love Him. His continuing love is actually the means to continually release us from the hold of idolatry on our lives. He first embraces us and makes us His own And then in that acceptance, he begins to mold us and rework us and liberate us and heal us. We've got a cat the next few days that my son apparently took in as a stray. It's 
doing a lot better now. And so I'm playing off that a little bit. But we're like a stray cat. Twelve-year-old girl takes in with the permission of her parents. Its fur is patchy. Its bones are showing underneath the skin. Its eyes have yellow stuff around them. Its meow is crackling. It's half crippled when it walks. But she loves it. And she holds it. And she feeds it. And she nurses it. And she sings to it. And she dresses it. And she puts it in her bed with her. And she takes it wherever she goes. And she applies its medicines. And one day, it looks like a whole different cat. Rich and shiny fur. Filled out body. Clear green eyes that seem to shine in the dark. You see, our disease, our crippled walk, our patchy fur and sick eyes, it's our idolatry that demeans us and degrades us and disfigures us. And left to its own, it would devastate and destroy us. But he brings us in, embraces us, and gradually, steadily heals our affections. That's what's got to be healed. He heals our affections so that more and more we love Him from the heart and we love all things for His sake. Does that describe your life? Is Jesus Christ the love of your heart? I know He won't be perfectly, but this of all times, when there is so much talk about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, It's a time for really examining your life and asking, do I worship the King of Kings? Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins, who saves us from our vain abominations, from our chaos and confusion. Oh Lord, peace us back together. Heal us, Lord. Fix us. Bind us up. Brace us. Give us all that we need, almighty servant. You who are able to do all things. We have no other hope but you. We have no other life but you. We have no satisfaction and happiness but you. And everything else in life will be meaningless, Lord. If you are not in the middle of it all. Bless us with that faith to trust in Christ alone, to take away all of our sins, to take away our guilt, to bring us to God, that we may be embraced by Him, and in that embrace, continually be changed by His love to walk ourselves in love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.